we have ourselves an interview this week on the Onto Something podcast. Hey, if you're new to the space, my name is Zane, and this is the podcast place in which we talk about what you are onto in life. And we tend to talk about faith, relationships, or your work of what you contribute to the world. So this week, we are on with a friend by the name of Richard Beck. Uh, Richard just wrote a book called Hunting Magic Eels, Recovering Enchanted Faith in a Skeptical Age. Listen, I read through this book, and I am constantly having conversations with people who are wrestling with faith, and I found this book to be very helpful. Uh, Now, what Richard does is uh, he's like a Sparks Notes guy to some of the like biggest thinkers right now, which I don't know if that's insulting to say. He's not just Spark Notes himself, but he wrote this book in a Spark Notes way of a lot of pages of a lot of conversations other people are having that is really helpful to diagnose some of the stuff you may encounter through your faith. So if you are exhausted of talking about faith stuff, if you're discontent with faith right now, If you feel like you are in your head or you have spent a lot of time in your head trying to figure out arguments or ways of thinking with Christianity, or if you're consumed with God talk and it's been a while since you've actually talked to God, this podcast will be extremely helpful. So without further ado, let's hop into the episode. When I sent Richard an email to have this conversation, I said, hey, Richard, do you want the questions before or do you want to go just a blindfold experience? And he said blindfold experience. So, Richard, let's see. Uh, let's see how you handle the on to something listeners today. Yeah. Yeah. That's a little frightening, but let's do it. <laughs> um, are you tired of talking about magic eels yet? Well, it seems like you have to explain the title. I did not pick the title. The publisher did. And now every I have to begin with this long discourse about what a magic eel is and why we were looking for them. You don't get to pick the title? No, publishers, they it's their book to sell. And so they they design the cover, they pick the title. Um, I mean, you, I have charge of the content, but as far as the, any marketing side of it, they're the oh. ones pr- primarily making money off the product, not the author. And so they have a lot of creative control over that. I mean, uh, unless you were like, Oprah or something, you can probably <laughs> dictate your terms. But when you when you play my sandbox, they're gonna they're gonna pick the title. Gotcha. Okay, so no Oprah. Well, I'm pumped about it because at the beginning of the year, there were two books on my radar. I was very excited about, uh, and Hunting Magic Eels was one of those books. So I'm looking forward to introducing it. Uh, here's a question I'm really curious about asking you about. Uh, you speak in front of people. Uh, or at least you used to speak in front of people before COVID. Mm-hmm. Do you like being introduced before you speak, or are you more of the type that's like, I like my audience cold. I don't like a tone that's set. I don't like to be introed. Which which one are you in that? I, I don't know if I care about intros. What what the what the host says about me. Um, but I do have a habit of just getting into it. Like I don't give much of an intro. And so when mm. I hit the stage, I say very little about who I am and I mm. just start talking. And, and mm-hmm. so a lot, I don't do a lot of pre, I mean, 
I, I typically am a pretty intense person. So I have things I want to say, <laughs> and so I just jump right into it. So I, I, I go short intros, whatever it is, I'd rather just kind of get into it. Like, here's a guy, he has some things to say <laughs> and uh, let's listen. Yeah. And here we go. Okay. And your lane that you kind of overlap in is psychology and theology together. Um, you run a blog, experimental theology. When did, when did those two things merge together? for you? I mean, of course, psychology and theology have also always yeah. gone together, but. Yeah. So for your audience, I am a professor of psychology at Abilene Christian University, but I intersect with theology. And so a lot of people kind of mistake me for a theologian, but I'm a psychologist who has interest in theology and write about those intersections. And I started my blog back in 2007 when people read blogs. Nobody reads them anymore. They are now <laughs> listening to, they're now listening to this podcast because that's the right. thing now. But I'm still writing there. And so it became a space for me to reflect on just intersections of psychology and, and faith and spirituality. And I call it experimental theology because a lot of the ideas I float there are pro very provisional, uh, the thought balloons. It allows me hmm. to kind of think out loud. Um, and so that's kind of where that name came from, experimental theology. Um, so also a plausible deniability. If I write something that's really stupid, <laughs> you know, I write something that's really stupid, I can say, well, it's just an experiment. Um, it's just in the blog. Yeah, yeah. It was just a thought and probably a bad one. So yeah. <laughs> here's the personal question I've got for you on that. So if uh, like, for example, a Leviticus blog came out today and you've been reading through Leviticus, do you have a hard time shutting off your brain of like, as you read through for your own formation, you're like, oh, that'd be a really good blog idea. Like, do you have to differentiate those? Can you shut down one voice as you're working with another? You know, I think I write all kinds of things. Sometimes I write things that tend to be more, try to be persuasive, um, try, mm -hmm. try to, they're for a, a particular reader. And then sometimes what I write is fairly just for me. And so my, my vocabulary and the thing I'm exploring might be not very accessible. And so people have a kind of a weird relationship with my blog. Sometimes I'm mm -hmm. writing kind of for them in a popular way. Mm -hmm. And then other times I'm just writing for myself and, and the, the, that might be not anything that people can kind of get a hold of. So somebody might look mm -hmm. at this series on Leviticus and go like, I don't really know why he's thinking about that out <laughs> loud, but, but it is what it is. So I've already used my blog. A lot of people use their blogs to kind of build a brand. So they're always writing for that external audience. And I've never done that. I've always used my blog as just an archive for what's going through my head mm. and, and, and not worried about whether or not um, this post would attract hits. I've never chased hits. And so I think I've been able to cultivate a unique voice online because mm -hmm. I don't chase after, I'm never chasing after the, the hot button issues. You're, you're, yeah. you're just, you're just joining this guy, um, on kind of what's on his mind, um, at that particular time. And that might be something you love or might be something obscure like the book of Leviticus. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. So you're just kind of scratching what's on the top of your brain and just yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, I kind of use it for me. And and I think people people who re read me regularly, kind of they enjoy that part of me because when they're dipping into my space, they're going like, who knows what he's going to go after next? Right. So yeah, I kind of like a rocky road. Yeah, I, I just finished the series on like the Lord of the Rings. And so you're bouncing between a long series on the Lord of the okay. Rings, a, you know, a thing on Leviticus. Sometimes I blog about political theology and sometimes magic eels. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Okay, so let's let's scratch some of the thoughts that were on magic eels. So, 
first, I think the best question to get a sense for the overall book, um, let's talk about the problem you're trying to get at. So you call the problem the ache. Do you mind explaining what the ache is? And then uh, particularly for people listening to this podcast, I'd love to hear what are the signs where you're like, okay, that person has the ache ushering into their life. Yeah, I'm making a connection between two different data points. For example, just this week, Gallup published a survey showing for the first time in the history of the United States, the majority of the population are not affiliated with a religious denomination. Mm -hmm. So on one side, we have this increasing uh, skepticism and lack of religious belief in the country. And we've seen that we've seen that trend um, for a long time. So that's one side of the equation. And yet on the other side of the equation, we're seeing uh, rising rates of anxiety, depression, addiction, suicide, epidemic, loneliness. And I think COVID mm -hmm. has made all of that worse. And so the argument I'm making is that those two trends are connected, mm -hmm. that the we are struggling to locate God in our lives, struggling to find a, a, a place of transcendence, of kind of unshakable meaning in our lives. And that is becoming harder and harder to find as we drift away from traditious, traditional religious um, convictions. And so instead, we're just lost at sea. And even mm -hmm. secular journalists are, are noting, I just read an article last week written from a one of, kind of like I don't know if it's in the Atlantic or the New York Times, but it was a secular person making this argument that the reason why young adults or and everybody, frankly, are struggling with so many many mental health issues, what I call the ache, this kind of uh -huh. the, the 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 restlessness in our hearts, is due to the fact that meaning, right, durable meaning in life, is harder to find in a post-religious, post-Christian world because mm -hmm. the meaning that we're looking for is something I have to construct on my own. And well, if my life is kind of at a dead end or I'm, I'm, I'm dealing with a bunch of broken dreams, well, that's hard for me. And therefore all the mental health symptoms of like, what's the point of life? And am I successful? And um, does anybody care about my small sufferings? Um, all of those feelings crash into us. And so we see the mental health consequences of that. Mm-hmm. And what's a what's a couple of signs that when you have a student that comes up to you after a lecture or, um, you know, you're an elder at a church, you hear someone processing their faith. What's a couple of signs that those people are really running into that? I mean, you mentioned mental health as one. Yeah. I mean, one of the ones is how everything is high stakes. Like, why is everybody so anxious? So for college students and I think for young professionals uh, and young adults is the meritocracy. Um, what Alan DeBotton calls status anxiety, that we all know that if we're going to try to get ahead in the world and be successful, and that, that has become increasingly difficult as the middle class has struggled economically over the last couple decades in America, that every choice we make from choosing a career or choosing where to live or choosing to incur some debt, um, all of those now feel very risky because it doesn't hmm. seem there's much of a safety net anymore. Hmm. And so every, every crossroads I reach in life, I'm looking down at two different paths going like, I better not, I better not screw this up because if I make the wrong choice here, right? If I get behind the debt 
Mm. Uh, load, or if I choose the wrong career and that career evaporates in a rapidly changing market, then suddenly um, I'm stuck in life. Mm -hmm. So I do think there is a sense where we're struggling, the meritocracy itself, that we're, we feel like we're walking across the tightrope to some happy future and we look below and there is no safety net. And so every step I take on the tightrope of, of the American dream is, is very precarious. And so that's one sign when you see a student stressed out, like I have to pass this class because if I don't pass this class, then I won't be able to get into that grad school. And if I don't get into that grad school, then the dream that I have for our life completely fails. And so suddenly they are freaking out over getting a B. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. and it's because everything is high stakes now. So um, that, that is one example of the ache is the fragility of happiness mm -hmm. um, and the the fragility of a happy, contented, secure future. No, that resonates very deeply. Can I, can I read you something that I think resonates very deeply as well? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay, this is, uh, this is by Richard Beck. <laughs> the goal of faith for me became developing deep and sophisticated theological opinions on array of issues, controversies, and questions. The problem of evil and suffering, the violence we find in Old Testament, the nature of atonement, how we make science jibe with the Bible, the moral witness of the Apostle Paul and issues of gender and slavery, the nature of God's judgment. And then, if I was to put it plainly, I was too much in my head. The wheels wouldn't stop spinning. I couldn't pray because prayer was one of the things I had questions about. Couldn't worship because I had too many theological disagreements with the lyrics that we were singing. I walked away from a sermon after sermon with long lists of questions, especially after Jonathan's sermons. <laughs> and uh, over time, I'd cut myself off from God, trapping myself in a prison of words and ideas. When I read that, that describes so much of the journey that a lot of people go on when they go into deep diving places to explore their faith further. Here's one of my questions with that, because that's your personal experience. Do you think that is an inevitable experience if people continually go in depth, especially when they go in depth with their education, or do you think that's avoidable? I don't know if it's inevitable, but I think it's highly likely. So I don't want to paint with like 100% of the time. Right, I, think, right. I, I think there's, I think, yeah, there might be somebody out there who, who has quote the gift of faith and they can go mm -hmm. through an intellectual training or they can go on a deep dive to kind of deconstruct or analyze their faith and kind of kick the tires um, of what they've inherited as a, as a child, let's say. That, that they might get through that, you know, un, untroubled. But I think if mm -hmm. any, but I think most people, I agree with you. I think the the most people, as they ask harder questions, and the answers they have been given begin to crumble, will go mm -hmm. through an experience of grief or fear or loss or disequilibrium, and that the the process of finding answers that are commensurate with your questions. Um, is is a hard, troubled process for many people. So, for example, a lot of my students, I say part of the problem is, is that the answers you were given when you were 16 are no longer answering the questions um, now that you're 22. Mm -hmm. 
And I said, and so, but you, you are mistakenly believing that the 16 year old answers is Christianity. I think that's the biggest uh-huh. mistake they make. They say, well, because I don't agree with what I believed when I was 16, then therefore God doesn't exist. All of this. You know? Yeah. Like they, they, and I go, no, there are, I said, Christianity is a very nerdy religion. I mean, some really smart people have been thinking about these exact questions for over 2000 years. Yeah. And so don't just walk away from your childhood faith thinking you're walking away from Christianity. You're walking away from um, a very simplistic view of Christianity. So, so go on the journey, go on the journey to find better answers to your questions. So I do think that's one encouragement, but the other thing I'm trying to get at in the book right there is that the search for answers become, becomes an end in itself. Hmm. And we think that becoming a mature Christian is sophisticated theology. To, mm-hmm. to let go of a simplistic view of the atonement, to have a more you know, complex view of the atonement, or on, or on the problem of evil, or, and so on and so forth. So I think we de- that's a necessary work, and it can be destabilizing. But that work isn't the only thing that's going on. And so mm-hmm. I don't want us to turn God into a Rubik's Cube that we have to solve. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of smart analytical thinkers get trapped in that very game. Yeah, and gravitate towards it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so one of the things you're talking about with people in the book is when work with people's attention towards God, um, you use the word of enchantment, re-enchantment. Uh, I remember my youth minister one night, he was completely doing a lesson. It was flopping really bad. And he said, you know what? I'm quitting it. I'm stopping. He drew a man on the board and he goes, tonight, I'm going to teach you about Martin Luther. And he just starts going on and on about the Protestant Reformation and everything. It was very formative. Now, I was very confused of why Martin Luther King was in that age. I didn't quite make the parallel as a middle schooler, but it got it got through to me. And that was a conversation about how Protestant, that Protestant movement really opened and changed the game for us. You kind of reframe in this book, flipping it back to basically saying, yeah, but we kind of lost some stuff as well. Do you mind just kind of walking people through of like, how has Christianity, Protestant Christianity, uh, lost some roots of enchantment. Yeah, so I'm a Protestant, and so so I'm not. Um, I want to not come down too hard on Protestants, but one of the arguments I make, and this is not my argument, this is borrowed from many kinds of scholars, that mm-hmm. going from the Catholic experience to the Protestant experience, where uh, a lot of us are living, that that we that journey has been. Um, what I describe in the book is from the uh, I call it the mystical to moral shift mm-hmm. that we, we have walked away from a more kind of supernatural, mystical, spookier, and even superstitious experience with God. A lot of Protestants will look at like their Catholic brothers and sisters who pray to St. Anthony, you know, to find mm-hmm. their car keys because he's patron saint of lost things, or they'll see the rosaries hanging from the, the car. car mirrors. Like that all seems kind of, superstitious. So the Catholic experience has always been very uh, mystical in that way, maybe a bit too much so. And so what Protestants did is they started focusing on, well, a holiness, personal, right? So if you grew up Protestant, the goal wasn't to have a mystical encounter with God. The goal, at least as I was raised, was to avoid R-rated movies, 
mm-hmm. <laughs> to, you know, to, to avoid drugs and smoking and sex and, 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 uh, and, and, you know, be, it, you know, go dig water wells in Africa. And so, <laughs> right. Right. So the job was yeah. to, to spend your summer, you know, on a mission trip and to kind of walk the straight and narrow. And so that moral emphasis, and we would, and you see it in the early settlers of America and the Puritans, Mm-hmm. Um, the puritanical impulse, the holiness impulse, the pietistic. You also see it in the Protestant work ethic, right? To pay your taxes, be responsible, show up on time. So we, we cash out Jesus in moralistic terms. And that has, I would say, for your listeners, that was has been the most damaging move in in, in recent Christian history. And the reason it's damaging is because when we understand understand faith to be fundamentally about moral or political performance, and so for my students, that means the social justice warrior or or the evangelical Protestant student, right? So on both sides, left and right, when they're cashing out their faith politically or morally, then faith is placed, I describe it in the book, in like a very fragile position. It's like a glass pushed to the edge of the table because the very next question that gets asked is, well, do you need to go to church to be a good person? Mm-hmm. Do you need to believe in God to be a social justice warrior? And the answer is no. Um, can an atheist be a good person? Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. of course they can. And so when the goal becomes just goodness, politically or morally conceived, then then I think Protestantism pushed God, and I'm talking about here kind of a the supernatural aspect of God, the mm-hmm. mystical encounter with God. To it's kind of like you know that's not really even important. You know the mm-hmm. important thing is like be out there marching for justice. Right. The important thing is like you know, um, you know, calling your congressman and 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 being a kind person. Like that's the most important thing. And if you check those boxes, then you know the, this religious thing is not really. A big deal. And I think that's kind of where we are in our country. When goodness is good enough, then yeah, church struggles to, to gain a hearing. God struggles to gain a hearing because goodness politically conceived is the goal of the game. And so to me, that mystical to moral shift is one of the ways that Protestantism unwittingly made Christianity a bit more fragile in our modern world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it all it all also seems like there's just exhaustion when you chase good over God. Um, you become exhausted because there's also not a confession of saying, "I have a part in this ache or the groan that is in the world," um, and you don't know what to do with that, even if you recognize that. So, what would you what would you um, encourage someone who um, is wanting to experience enchantment with God? Uh, particularly maybe someone who's like, I've been raised with Christianity, just being beliefs in general. What, where would, where would you start with that person to say, here's how you start to invite this into your world? Yeah. So let's go back and just define some words that people might've been lost in is, you know, enchantment and disenchantment, uh, what that means. But, but basically enchantment refers to the experience um, 500 years ago where the world was full of supernatural uh, encounters where God was a, a, a live reality for us. And disenchantment refers to this age of skepticism and doubt so that we've gone from an enchanted experience of the world to disenchanted. And like you just pointed out, most of us think that has been a journey from belief to disbelief. We used to believe in some things 
We now find because of science and technology, those beliefs harder. And so therefore we're having a crisis of belief. The argument that I'm making by focusing on enchantment is we're having a crisis of attention. That faith flows not so much out of, as, as I tell my students, Christianity is not about forcing yourself to believe in unbelievable things. That's how a lot of us experience this. Like I find this hard to believe mm-hmm. in and somehow I'm being told uh, by my pastor to just believe it. And, and, and so belief is hard to achieve as an act of willpower. What I'm arguing for is if we focus on enchantment, then then we shift to experiences. And if we can focus our attention on the way God is coming to us um, every moment of every day and learn to attend to those, then suddenly the plausibility structures of Christianity starts getting strengthened a little bit because my eyes and my heart and my mind are, are turned to things mm-hmm. that, that make the presence of God more real to me. So to me, that's my argument in the book. If we focus on our attention and on experiences and don't just say, hey, everybody, believe it. Just believe this list of things. Yeah. Then we can help. We can kind of woo and, and nurture faith in people. So I, I use the, I, barring from Andrew Root, who's an author, I use a famous experiment in psychology by Daniel Simons. And in, in your, your listeners probably know what the video is. It's where there's these two basketball teams passing a basketball back and forth. And, and the video says, you know, count the number of passes between the, the black team and the white team. And you count the passes. And then the video stops and says, there were 16 passes, you know, were you correct? And you're like, yes, mm-hmm. I counted 16. And it says, okay, great. But did you see the dancing gorilla? And you're like, I, I didn't see a dancing gorilla. Video rewinds, replays. And yes, in the middle of all of that counting, a guy in a gorilla suit came out, did a little I dance and, and goes off. And so in psychology, so this is my psychology coming out. This is an example um, of what's called attention blindness how when our attention is focused on one part of reality, the most obvious parts of reality actually go missing. Like the most obvious thing on that video is a dancing gorilla. <laughs> and so that's the thing that we're missing. And so the argument of the book is God is, this might be heretical to say, but God is your dancing gorilla, okay? <laughs> right? The, the, the sacred, the transcendent is the thing looking you straight in the face. Mm-hmm. But the modern world has so shaped our perceptual habits, we can't see God anymore. So the goal isn't to believe in God. It's to see the dancing gorilla right in front of you. How do you do that? That's that's what mm-hmm. the book is about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so getting into how you do that. So you've got a line in the book that kind of disturbed me a little bit in a good way. Uh, you have this line that says, uh, look at your neck. Look at your wrist. Look at your finger. What about those places on your body or in the places that you go? What about that reminds you of spiritual realities? Um, and I looked down, and I had an Apple Watch on. Uh, I looked down. I did have a ring on. Um, but you kind of talk about how one of the ways to start ushering this in is to actually set yourself up for some things that can help you um, be able to run into God. I think you use the roommate of uh, you and God are roommates mm-hmm. and you expect to run into each other often. Um, can you give some really, pre- cause like that's so helpful. A lot of people think, Oh, that's weird. Like some of the things that Christians use to be able 
to uh, bring those thin spaces there. It's weird. So like what what would you recommend as a, hey, here's a really good starter if you want to utilize something that will help you help you see reenchantment? Yeah, what I'm trying to combat is what I describe in the book as Christian atheism. And Christian atheism is this kind of default assumption when you wake up in the morning that God isn't there. Um, mm-hmm. God, we're, we're living in, as I talk about in the book, uh, in a two-story house. God lives on the upstairs. You know, maybe you hear him knocking around up there occasionally. Like, what's he doing up there? My loud, mm-hmm. ups- you know, and we're living on earth on this, on the first floor. And the trouble with that imagination is that God is just imagined as somewhere else, kind of as, as distant. And so, so you combat Christian atheism, that kind of default forgetting of God, um, by imagining you're living in a one-story universe. Like Paul de- mm-hmm. Paul declared in the book of Acts, he, he looks at these people and says, this unknown God, right, this dancing gorilla that you cannot mm-hmm. see, Paul says, in him you live and you move and you have your being. Like that's about as close as you can get. Like God is the the water you're swimming in, the air you're breathing. That's a one-story universe. And so how do you cultivate that imagination? So yeah, one of the things I talk about in the book is taking a cue from, the again, the Catholic tradition. And the Catholic tradition, mainly because the, the for most of, most of the Catholic um, history, they, they were trying to preach the gospel to an illiterate audience. Uh, mm-hmm. People couldn't read. People couldn't read. Yeah. Um, and also their, their masses were in Latin. <laughs> Nobody knew what they were saying. So, so they, they cultivated a theology of spiritual formation that was very image driven and, and very material. And there, so there's a saying in Catholic um, theology called matter matters, like physical oh. stuff, matter matters. Mm-hmm. And so one, a simplistic recommendation for kind of drawing our attention to the sacred is attending to material surroundings, attending to aesthetics and um, and images. And so try to enchant your space. If you look at your space, do you have something that might kind of captivate and grab your uh, attention? And we can just put things, you know, so it might be simply a, um, like I like use icons. Those are old, you know, mm-hmm. so I don't, let me be clear. We all vary on our Christian aesthetics. So some of us might walk into a Mardell and just love what we see in a Protestant Christian bookstore. Some of us might be horrified <laughs> by what we found in there. And I, I'm one of those people that are kind of horrified by, by the aesthetic of, of Mardell. But I, I, so what I do is I collect, um, I collect like vintage Catholic stuff, like vintage rosaries, vintage uh-huh. icons, vi- vintage statues. What's an icon for people? And I, yeah, uh, an icon is like a like an old Christian, you know, depiction of Christ or something. Um, or uh, vintage Catholic statues, uh, like of Jesus or, or or a favorite saint like Saint Francis. And I and my I just stuff my my house and my garden and my car and my um, office with these things. To, to put material things to kind of remind me wherever I look, my, my gaze falls. I'm being prompted back to a spiritual reality that God is not upstairs. He's in the room with me mm-hmm. now, or you might be something and you can do other kinds of things. Like some of it, this might be the sticky note on the mirror, mm-hmm. um, the material reminder. 
Um, for some of us, it might be a tattoo that we get that, that's on our wrist that we look at, or it might be a, a, a James Avery piece of jewelry around your neck that you wear that, that, is, a, that is a cross. So like, like when Brendan, my son, got baptized, mm-hmm. um, we went to James Avery and I said, I want you to pick a cross. I want you to wear something around your neck. So when you, when you look at yourself in the mirror um, and he wears it, you, you've seen it. You've, seen, you've probably seen yep. Brendan's cross. That cross he got at his baptism and he continues to huh. wear it pretty faithfully. And, and the, the reason for the cross was um, not a present, but to give him a material reminder of his baptism that he carries and he sees visually every day. That's just a, that's just a simple little technique, attend yeah. to the material surroundings. Because if, if you don't see God in your sight line, then God is invisible. And therefore you're back in that kind of atheistic posture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and for those who go into the book, I mean, even, even when he talks about um, prayer rope that you use, I mean, the, those types of things, super helpful, very practical um, and reminders of it. Now, let me ask you a question on the back end of the book that I think has, is really helpful. People read it, especially for people that are logical thinkers. Uh, Cause when you start talking experience, which is someone who's gone to college and gone to a bio pro, when you start talking experience, people get very nervous across the board with faith. Uh, Cause they don't want it to just be based off of experience. You provide like some helpful guardrails of, Hey, here's how you test out like we prepare ourselves to encounter God. And then as soon as we encounter God, we're like, oh, that may have not been God because we're super sensitive to that. How do you help people test and discern when I've had a re-enchantment experience, when I've encountered the living God? What What's some of the stuff that you say for that? Yeah, so this is picking up from a biblical theme, the discernment of spirits. You know, don't believe every spirit, but discern mm-hmm. the spirits. So here's a whole book I wrote about, you know, attending to the sacred, attending to the spiritual, listening for the voice of God. And for many of us, we need that. That That is rain on dry spiritual ground. We, we need to look and discern the presence of God in our lives. And yet, whenever you start saying, focus, listen for the voice of God, focus on the sacred, some people get really nervous because they've, they see the way an experience of God all right, getting a, a word from the Lord has been mm-hmm. used in a harmful way, abusive um, way yeah. or an abusive way. And so, so here I am opening the door, say more experiences. <laughs> and that would seem very unsafe if I did not attend to discernment issues. And so one of the reasons mm-hmm. I'm proud of my book, because in, in one sense, the book is kind of like right there with the culture. Like it, here's a book saying we need to have a more spiritual and mystical experience of the transcendent and of God. That's like right where the world is right now. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm pleased to write a book though that does give a robust discernment chapter. And so I, to your point, how do you discern the experiences? And and basically I land on two quick things. One is does your does your enchantment have a prophetic aspect to it? A lot of times what happens with enchantment is that is we're just using God to justify what I already think or already what mm-hmm. I believe. Self-projection. Right? Yeah. So here, here's a quick question. Like, like does, does your, does your, does this voice of God that you're hearing, is it, is it able to critique you? Cause oftentimes mm-hmm. what we want to do is get a word from the Lord and critique other people. Yeah. So does yeah. your, does your enchantment have the capacity to hold up a mirror to your own hypocrisy? Here's a hard question. Does, does, this experience of God point out the hypocrisy of your political party. Um, Mm. 
mm-hmm. right? Because a lot of times what we're doing is we're so conflating God with our politics that again, the, the, the two are so fused. Yikes. There is no prophetic mm-hmm. potential there because God already agrees with me. Mm-hmm. And, and so my question is, is like, can you cultivate the capacity where God can hold your own political views right up to the mirror and point out like, this is like revelation that the letters to the churches of Asia, where Jesus says, here's some good things. And yet I hold these things against you. Can mm-hmm. your voice of God hold things against you and hold things against your political party? And if you do, then, then that's a safer enchantment because it's self-critical. So be wary of an enchantment that lacks that ability. Like when somebody's like, no, God agrees with me. God agrees with my politics. God agrees with my country. God agrees with my church. God agrees with my pastor. You know, then, ah, okay, that's a dangerous enchantment. Yeah. And the second thing I would say is, does your enchantment call you to sacrificial love? Yep, cross-shaped. Yeah, so think about Peter in Acts. He gets this vision of unclean animals. So he has this mystical experience on his roof. You know, rise, kill, and eat these unclean animals. And Peter's like, I can't eat it. It's not kosher. I'm a Jew. And then the voice says, do not call something unclean that God has made clean. It looks like it's an experience about food, but it's really an experience about human beings. Because he goes to the Gentiles. And so for right, people who are perceived to be unclean. And this experience pushes him out of his comfort zone, moves him out of his, you know, out of his privilege, um, moves him out of his uh uh the, the, the power structure and puts him in front of people that he's like, what am I doing here? Mm-hmm. And he declares to these people, God has just shown me um, that he, he doesn't show favoritism. Uh, God is not into prejudices and biases about other human beings. He taught me that the Gentiles are clean. When you see your enchantment moving you out of your social comfort zone to stand before people and say, Hey, I need to build a bridge here. Um, uh, I, I thought you were, you know, uh, a problem um, for me. Like, like whenever you see God building bridges of relationship, that is a good sign that you are on the hunt for mm-hmm. God and Jesus and not some sort of um, the word from the Lord that just kind of baptizes your own indulgence um, or justifies your own political opinion. So if God is calling you to kind of a sacrificial love, if you're sitting at a table with somebody who is so different from you and you say to each other, the only reason we're around this table is because of the Lord, you know, then that's a good sign. That's a good sign. So is God calling you to sacrificial love and can your enchantment critique you or just two tools I give to kind of say that's a safer enchantment than, than the other versions you see out in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which it puts you in a place where you're not just saying if someone hears something or encounters something, it's either wow or whoa. <laughs> and that's, that's the only two reaction. I, f- I find it, it was, it was so good to see it written so simply of like there's some handles and some guardrails. Um, so if you were just being asked to kind of wrap up a little bit, if you were being asked, who's the who's the best person uh, to pick up this book or um, to read some of this work that you did, who would you recommend this for? I think this is a book for anybody who's who two two audience. The the main audience is anybody who who feels like their faith is a little fragile. Somebody who feels like it's really hard to believe in God, somebody who doesn't know if God is relevant, somebody who struggles with 
with going to church. So basically those who are being hit pretty hard by the skepticism of the modern world, mm-hmm. um, the nuns, the duns, the, the agnostics, <laughs> it's the, and, and, the, and, the, and the Christian atheists, the, 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 the Christians who have a dry spiritual life and they're kind of doing it from habit. I want their, I want their spiritual life to be filled with, well, the surprising wonder and joy of, the, of encountering the living God, not God as an idea, but the living God. And I would also say for those Christians who, who are faithful, but they just want to go deeper. Um, mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of, like we've talked about practical things in the book mm-hmm. that can help. And maybe also last group for, for spouses or parents or friends who are seeing the faith crises in their children, uh, yep. in their husband or their wife. It's for pastors who are trying to minister to increasingly skeptical um, college students or young adults and, and adolescents. Basically, it's for anybody who wants to deepen their faith or walk alongside somebody who's struggling with their faith. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that that was one of the reasons it resonates so deeply with me is that you can only have a certain amount of time with coffee with someone, but to point to a book like this is a long conversation that someone can actually have and yeah. super helpful. So I'm just really thankful that you wrote it and that you simplified for people to be able to get onto it. It was good. How about uh how about finishing out with some lightning questions just right, let's about, do it. Uh, let's just just about do it. Richard in general? I'm, right? fri- I'm frightened of this, but let's try it. I'll try to now, go fast. Now you'll get it. Yeah. He's been <laughs> formed to go slow and now we're asking him to no. go fast. Uh who's someone you're learning from publicly right now? What do you mean by publicly? So can't be Jana, can't be the boys, can't be someone you personally know. Just who who's someone in public that you're learning from right now, not connected with? Oh, um, I mean, the person I'm learning for right now is like Catherine Tanner, but she's a theologian. But is that public? Yeah, that would count. Yeah, yeah Kat, she's, a, she's a theologian I'm, I'm chasing after right now. Um, and how'd you discover her? Oh, I discovered her because I'm, I'm – I'm, this book is, is that I just – Hunting Magic Eels is kind of about the intersection mm-hmm. of God and mental health. And there's just a lot of puzzles out there and, and confusions in the world about how God relates to our depression uh-huh. and what is realistic to expect about God and mental health. And and you have some Christians that say, you know, don't take your meds and, and don't go to a yeah. therapist because God will do it all. And then there's other Christians on the other side of like, no, just take your meds and go to therapy and God's kind right. of irrelevant. And so I've been looking for theologians that can help hmm. me kind of like solve that puzzle. So that might be my next, I think my next book might be da- chasing down that relationship between God and mental health. And Catherine Tanner has written a lot about divine action in the world. Like, huh, what does it look like for God to like physically show up in space and time? Um, and so... Anyway, that's why I'm that's what I'm reading right now. Oh, that's beautiful. Uh, what's your ideal rhythm for a normal day? Oh man, I love it when I don't teach in the morning and I can get up and I can go <laughs> slow. I can go slow through my so I get up, I I, I pray, I do I'm reading through the Bible uh, for the last couple of years. So I get up, I do scripture reading, um, and then I ride my bike to work. I love the bike commute. Those are really that's huh. a really sacred time for me. Um, and then bike riding home. And then, and then if Janice says, let's go out on a date that like, that is a good day. That's perfect. That's perfect. <laughs> awesome. I mean, do you just embrace the pit stains if you're going on the bike and it's a hot day? Uh, yeah, it's thankfully the, the, the academic year is from fall to spring, <laughs> but you're right. You're right. You're at, the beginning, at the beginning, <laughs> the end of the academic year in Texas, that can be a sweaty ride. Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, I believe you. Hey, can you talk a second about the Bible that you got the boys that you're sharing with? I ran to it with Aiden, and he described it. And it was awesome. Can you yeah, tell people so, about that? No, yeah. So um, uh, one of the people I just like following online is Bishop Robert Barron. Um, mm-hmm. he, he runs a ministry called Word on Fire. And again, the reason why I got interested in him is because Word on Fire is a, a Catholic initiative um, focusing on evangel- evangelism. And so I'm just interested in anything that could help evangelism in the modern world. And so uh, and one of the one of the ways we do evangelism in the modern world is something we've talked about for Robert Barron is um, the way of beauty. So they have developed this Bible, the Word on Fire Bible, that focuses on beauty. It's aesthetically gorgeous. The inserts are like a famous paintings from across the Christian tradition with commentary. And so it's a gorgeous physical artifact that, that, that if you hand it to somebody, even a non-believer, they would want to just flip through the Bible, this, this Bible, because it's gorgeous mm-hmm. and it just pulls you in. So, so, uh, so that's, yeah, the word on fire Bible, uh, the gospels editions out. It's, it's stunning. Um, like if you were reading it on a plane, somebody would tap you on the shoulder and say, what is that? That's beautiful. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it is. And it makes it really easy to read with parallel. It's got commentary. It's just, it's just beautiful. It's a beautiful mm-hmm. set. I loved it. All right, so here's the last one. This one will probably frustrate you a little bit, but this is kind of our ultimate last question for you. <laughs> What's one piece of advice that you haven't had the chance to share with someone yet? Oh, see, that's a, how you can do a lightning round on a piece of advice that I haven't <laughs> that I haven't shared with somebody yet. I gave you a warning. It oh was my gosh, I talk too much, Zane. <laughs> I, I, I like I've left. I'm not sitting on some great secret. Uh, um, you know, you know, I don't say this a lot to my students. Okay. Um, but but I but. And this is kind of trite, I think, in the modern world. But I would say unplug more. That's what I would say. Um, The reason I don't say that out loud to my students is because they're like, here he is. Right. Here's a grumpy old, he's a grumpy old professor that can't run a PowerPoint telling me to to unplug. (laughs) So it's so like they see it coming from like a mile away that by the time I'm halfway through the sentence, they have tuned me out. But. I don't know, but I think more time in the backyard or on a walk or on that bike ride, um, you know, I, I think we need to recover. And I think that's been one good thing from COVID is yep. that people, people started to, you know, they started baking or picking up a hobby. So as the world opens back up, you know, let's, let's keep some of the, some of those slower rhythms. Mm-hmm. Um, let, let, let's not let Netflix fill every nook and cranny of our heart and, and, you know, let's ask a friend a coffee. Mm-hmm. And I know that's been said a hundred times, but I don't say it a lot to my students because I just think they feel like I'm hectoring them. But I think it's right. the truth. Right. And I mean, if we're really talking about reenchantment, that is one of the places to be able to actually start ushering and inviting God to do that. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. Okay. So you've uh, you've said you really love Mardell's art. Uh, <laughs> God is basically a gorilla. <laughs> Uh, I think we've wrapped up this podcast. I, I think so. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's been covered. <laughs> hey, thank you so much. It's been delightful, Zane. Yeah, Richard. Thanks for thanks for writing the book. And I think it's really, I think it's really good, really valuable, really helpful, especially for what I do in the world. So thank you for doing it. You're welcome. Yeah, thank cool. you.
All right, everyone, that was Richard. Now, if you didn't catch the book title, Hunting Magic Eels, you can Amazon it. You can find it there and be able to uh, get the book and dive into uh, some of those points even further. Um, I found it very helpful across the board. It's going to be a book that I recommend uh, to people as they're kind of wrestling through uh, faith and whenever you get to that stage. It's also helpful if you're mentoring or overseeing people that get in that stage as well. I think he's on to a lot of ideas. That brings us to the place of closing out this episode. This has been the On to Something podcast. Know that you can uh, go to On to Something, no G, onto to be able to find different blog stuff. You can find us on social media. Uh, feel free to repost, shout out to us, tag us with it. Until next time, friends, may you remember that you are onto something.